Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Analyzing Blitzscalable Venture Deals. I'm Chris Yeh, and I'm joined by my partners at Blitzscaling Ventures, Scott Johnson and Jeff Abbott. And today we're going to be talking about deals that were announced in November of 2022. So, Scott, lead us off. What are the high-level metrics for November 2022? Well, as you recall, a year ago, we were in the very high metrics, the heyday of the last cycle. And so we were up around 150 per month. Uh, that's a lot. It's just the funds that we track. So there are about 30 funds that we track and they were doing, you know, five deals each uh, in a month. That's, that's very, very uh, aggressive pacing. We're down to, you know, roughly half that. So 75, 85, sort of in that range has been the new normal since July. And this month was 83. So kind of right in the middle of the expected range of, of the new normal. And that's uh, 60 deals in the U.S. and 23 in non-U.S. deals. And th like, there's a slight uptick in A rounds, a slight uptick in seed, uh, sorry, series B rounds. Seed rounds was steady. So there may be slight reawakening of the A and B level of fundraising. It's not convincing data, but there's a you know there's a sort of indication that that might be happening. Got it. There are hints of an indication of a glimmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nothing convincing. And December is usually a light month for deals. So I don't expect to see anything particularly interesting in December, but um, next year we're, we're hopeful to sort of start afresh. Yeah. And it also sounds like we've now had five months since July of this new normal, and you had done some analysis of previous downturns indicating roughly how long these would last. What do you think? Is this just the new normal? Is it going to come back? Should we view the 2020 and 2021 era as aberrations? What would you expect going forward? Well, if you look at the big downturns in 2000 and 2008, it took about 18 months. Uh, in 2008, it, it was a little shorter than that in 2000 and in 2000 it was a little longer than that for things to come around so the question is you know when did it really start and it looks like it started in q2 um, maybe late q2 early q3 so by the end of next year we may have run through a lot of the defensive mindset that this new inflationary environment has instigated but who knows like you just can't predict so we're hopeful that we are making our way through it doesn't feel like there are a lot of companies going out of business right now there are a lot of companies struggling to raise and so they're not hiring so there are certainly a lot of people have battened down the hatches and prepared for the storm but i don't know how big that storm is going to be. Nobody does. There's a lot of talk about a recession, but nobody sees it yet. So we have to just wait and see. Well, the other thing I'll point out is that we are looking at announced deals, which usually trail the actual occurrence of the deals by several months. I would say, would you say two or three, you think on average? Well, it depends. Like if it's a company that just raised money from Sequoia, they're eager to sell, tell the world that they just did that. And so those can be very quick. And if it's a company that's trying to stay in stealth mode, then you may never hear about it. So it's uh, it's all over the map. 
Um, there's some companies that, you know, they, they do an inside round and they want to keep it quiet and there's no announcement ever. So there could be a lot more deals happening than we're seeing in the numbers here. That's true. But the other thing I'm getting at is that we usually do see a trailing effect in yeah. the sense that it's, you know, the data that we get for the month of November is not necessarily for deals in November. It's usually for deals that occurred before then, although a few of them might be those proud Sequoia, Greylock, Andreessen deals or something like that. Uh, but yeah, what that also that it, there's like naturally in a deal cycle, there's a term sheet. So there's the agreement right. to invest that happens. And then the actual investment is delayed by just getting the definitive docs created and agreed to. So that can be six weeks, eight weeks sometimes. And so the actual decision to invest is the interesting thing here. That means, okay, we're going to put some money to work into this company we're excited about. That's really where we would love to be able to track the deals, but that data is not available. So we, we work with the deal announcements and there could be a big uptick happening that we just won't see until February. Yeah, and I think the other thing is if we look at a baseline expectation of we would see the numbers turning around in our deal review by the end of 2023, the actual upturn in terms of deal activity and even further back in terms of term sheet extension would occur before then. So it may be that the turnaround will begin happening slightly earlier in 2023 than our deal count will show. Yeah, and then the question is, so what's you know when have we turned around because if you look back three years ago the average deal number was more like 100 so when we get back to 100 is that fine like have we recovered because i remember you know three years ago people were already talking about oh has the tech market overextended itself and aren't we in a bubble and when's it going to stop and we had been in a long long bull market even three years ago and it didn't get excessive until last year so the, the expectation that we're going to get back to last year's excess is certainly not something that I would encourage. I would definitely agree with that. And Jeff, you've lived through a couple of these cycles as well, both in the United States and around the world. I mean, you remember, I think you were actually deployed overseas when the 98 financial crisis happened and hit. I mean, what are you hearing from the folks you're talking with around the world? It's true. Yes, I was in Latin America during Web 1.0 crash. And of course, it was a very different time. Internet penetration was still 25% and credit card penetration was very low. So the market was was very different. But but certainly the, the crash of the NASDAQ and the suffering of, of the companies that went only after growth pretty much destroyed most early activity in, in, the, in the startup space, um, at least from what I saw in, in Latin America. When we look at the deals that we're seeing through our fellows program in international markets, it seems that the level of activity is similarly down and that the level of raise is similarly down. I think the pattern is, is fairly global at this point. Um, and many of the top firms in Europe that we're, that we're watching, I'd say most closely and in Latin America that we've spoken to, I think suggest the same thing, except they've been impacted even more strongly, given the effect that the, the strong dollar and the interest rates have had on their economies has, has even been perhaps more, um, more of a downward pressure on, on their scaling startups than, than it has in the US. Yeah, there's that classic flight to quality. And this is something certainly the US dollar has benefited from. It's something we've seen startups with strong syndicates with brand name VCs benefit from. 
when times are tough, people are like, well, what are the generally safe havens? And whether they're truly safe or not, people will say, well, let's go cluster under the umbrella of Sequoia, Greylock, Andreessen, et cetera. Let's go cluster under the umbrella of the U.S. dollar, because we think that that, at least, is probably the last thing to fall. Indeed. And, and of course, in places like Latin America, coming out of the pandemic, they've been much more damaged. Most, most developing world economies were, were much harder hit than the United States was, or, or even some of the, the stronger European economies. And so that double effect um, has, has dampened the consumer spending power, uh, but also contributes to a lot of pent-up demand. And, and I think when we come out of this, the same opportunities are, are there in, in, in large markets, like we're seeing in Southeast Asia and across Latin America. And one of the things that will show up interestingly in today's podcast is we are going to talk about a total of four different deals, three from our regular process, one through our fellows program, and two of those deals are from outside the United States. And I think it will be interesting as we talk through those deals to think about what the implications of the global macro environment might be. But let's go ahead and get started with the deals. What's deal number one on our list, Scott? Amy, A-M-I-E. It's a deal, a seed round that Spark did, $8.3 million. They're a company out of Berlin. And the URL what is- There's three non-US deals then. Hold on, I'm, I'm totally wrong. There's only one US deal. Wow. Yeah, well, uh, I guess the Europeans are, uh, oh, Philippines. is So it's not Europe. It's two in Europe and one in the Philippines. So mm -hmm. Amy is A-M-I-E dot S-O. And what is that top level domain? I haven't seen that before. Anybody know? S-O. S-O. I don't know. Anyway, so it's a spark deal, as I said. Creandum is also in there. So Creandum is a very high quality European firm. Uh, seed round, and it's called, <laughs> the, the, the description that we get from Crunchbase is the joyful productivity app. But essentially, it's a, it's a much better calendar. You know, um, everybody hates their calendar. Calendly has done some interesting things around scheduling that have been kind of neat and viral to see, but nobody's really improved the base calendar much recently. And I use my calendar as a to-do list and I block out time for me to do work on particular things so that my day is allocated and I don't just have meetings nonstop and never get any work done. And that really works for me. And this is a calendar that actually has that workflow built in. So it's a very attractive product for me. I've signed up for the, the beta, but I haven't gotten word yet that I have been admitted to the beta testing. But it's, you know, so, but Chris, why is a calendar something that could blitz go? Well, it comes down to the following. First of all, an off-stated principle of mine is that Google Calendar is the most powerful force in the universe because whatever's on the calendar, people just apparently do without even thinking about it. So there's a centrality to the calendar function that is basically universal. Everyone looks at it. Everyone uses it. I think that the other thing you mentioned, which really ties in with this, is Calendly. So with Calendly, we see something that has spread virally, that has become a unicorn, that is an enormously successful business that basically bootstrapped for most of the way. And that's because there's ferocious virality in scheduling. And that has become even more important in the post-pandemic era because of the fact that we have so many more meetings that are being done via Zoom. In fact, we have more meetings than ever before because we're not actually physically traveling to any of them. And the expectation is to go back to back to back to back to back. 
So that is one of the reasons why Calendly has done so well. The overall situation has increased the need for scheduling and calendar usage. So against this backdrop, here comes Amy. And what's interesting is Calendly is really incredibly simple, right? That's its benefit. Like Zoom, it does the simple things really well. And yet it's not that central. It's one feature of a calendar and it's not even fully tied into the calendar. And we know we've had endless problems with Zoom's integration with calendar and Calendly's integration with the calendar and so on and so forth. It's just that Google Calendar has been so dominant for so long, nobody's bothered to try. But now here comes Amy and it's saying, hey, let's think about the calendar, not just as a calendar, but as the center of your workflow and your life. And Amy has features, as you mentioned, for the to-do list. It has features for scheduling. It has features for smart time zones. Because I can tell you, since we do so much international work, I'm on timeanddate.com about five times a day, figuring out the right time zones. Having that built in would be really handy. And even things like keeping track of what you listen to, who you spoke with, and so on and so forth. Things that a calendar should do, but nobody's ever done because they view a calendar as an electronic version of a set of boxes on paper instead of what it actually is, which is the center of how you work and live. And so that's why I think it could be really intriguing. Again, it's a hard problem to solve, but if they solve it, it could be huge. And we've scored this very highly. We gave it a nine out of nine, nine out of 10 on the winner take most market. And that's because calendars are very sticky. I mean, how long have you been using Google Calendar? I've been using Google Calendar forever. I have never switched. It's incredibly sticky. And there is a network effect with something like Amy because the more advanced features are only really shining through at maximum power when both sides of the scheduling or both sides of the meeting or what have you are on Amy. So there's an incentive to get people on Amy. And then in terms of the uh, distribution, of course, Calendly has shown that scheduling itself is incredibly viral, as are many other elements of the calendar. And so we gave it a 9-9, not a 10-10, but a 9-9, which is very good. And then for the rest of the scores, we've got a 7 for product market fit because it's still early. It looks brilliant, but how's it going to work? This is why we've all signed up for the wait list, so we'll see. So that's great. Uh, market size, again, Calendly it demonstrated there's a lot of money to be made here, and this is something that could be even bigger than Calendly in many ways because it's more central. And then, of course, it's a classic software business, so 10 out of 10 on margins, on organizational and operational scalability for a 79, so just slightly below our threshold. But as we know, as we dig into it, maybe we find that there is better product market fit than we expected. Or maybe we find that there is an even bigger market than we expected. Who knows? We'll see. And that will hopefully get us above 80. But it's one that I'm really intrigued with. I can't yeah. wait to try it. I just got my approval just a moment ago. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. So Scott, yours should be coming soon. And, you know, if this actually delivers on the integrated functionality, then it's kind of taking a piece out of all of the best productivity systems that we've seen over the last 30 years, whether it's Franklin Covey, that you have to translate your vision and your goals into tasks, whether it's get shit done or Pomodoro, like you described, putting your task as calendar items, um, but sharing the availability of your calendar with others. Um, that is simple here. If, if in fact that works, um, it has the calendar like functionalities, the, the time zone all built in. If it can really deliver on all of that, it, it should make a meaningful contribution to people's productivity. Yeah, what I want is uh, to make it more of a marketplace. So Calendly is just like anybody can just pop onto your calendar and um, 
That I wonder if there's a lot of <laughs> there's a reason why I'm a Calendly <laughs> free rider. I'm the, I'm the only Calendly user here and I frequently suffer from it because I give it out and people in other time zones and it only goes to one calendar, right? So yeah. I have four calendars and it picks the one, you know, that happens to be open, but the other three might not. So hopefully it solves this issue too. You've noticed I refuse to use Calendly. I'm a yeah. pure free rider. Yeah. You'd like I, to be I, hard I, to get. I get it. I, <laughs> I know it's just because if I forget to block out some time and in my head, that time is free, but in my calendar, it's right. available to other people. Then suddenly I'm, I'm scheduled in the middle of lunch and no, thank you. So if there's a, some really quick for me, I don't know. Anyway, it's not a perfect product for me. I like Amy. The idea of Amy could be a much improved calendar, whether it's really that sticky. Like I switched from, Microsoft Exchange to the Apple Calendar for my desktop computer, and it was pretty easy to switch. Honestly, it, it's like Google feeds one or it feeds the other; it doesn't care. And so, it's you know, as far as using Google on the web for my calendaring, I don't do that. Uh, so, I we'll see. I mean, it, I, I hope it's better, and it's a lot of room for improvement here. Yep, but we got to try using it first. That's yeah, the key. Yeah, we'll see. All right, next up, the next. second deal we're going to talk about is what? It is uh, Wallet Connect. Okay, so Wallet Connect, uh, Union Square Ventures is in this deal. Um, we're not sure. It's, it looks like a seed round. It's $12.5 million done in early November. They've raised a total of 25. So this is, I guess, doubling up. Shopify let it. Uh, they're out of Delaware, and it's just what you'd expect on the URL side, walletconnect.com. Coinbase Ventures is in here, a uh, bunch of angels. So the, um, the investor syndicate is, is large and varied, and they help apps connect to crypto wallets. So if you want to take money from people who would prefer to give you crypto than uh, fiat currency, then they make that really easy to do. And so you can think of it kind of like Stripe. Now, Stripe just released the ability to do this themselves. So they certainly mm -hmm. have strong competition from Stripe. But if you're the one that people connect to and it's working, you're probably not going to switch unless the economics are enormously different. So. I think once this is embedded and you're using it, then it's going to be set and forget. So there is a bit of a land grab going on here. And uh, we scored it 81 total, but Chris, why don't you describe how we got there? Yeah. So in many ways, it's achieving a similar set of scores to Amy, but in different ways. So winner take most market, as you described, Scott, it is primarily a land grab argument. It's something where people, once they set it up, they keep using it. You can see that with Stripe. You can see that with Plaid and a bunch of other services like that. When it comes to the distribution, the reason is we believe that people will promote Wallet Connect because they want to be able to get customers. And, you know, getting customers on board is is going to require connecting to their wallets. Now, you know, there we can have some debate about things like product market fit. I think we gave them a higher score than Amy because the problem is just simpler. It's connect one app to one wallet and so on and so forth. And that's a lot simpler than changing human behavior. That being said, again, these product market fit uh, scores are always provisional, so that may change. Market size, we did penalize them a little bit. We still also only gave them a nine out of 10 on market size because guess what? 
Web3 is still very uncertain. The number of people who have wallets is still relatively low. And so how important is it to connect to those wallets may become more important over time. But then finally, classic software business, it is great gross margins, great scalability of operations and organization. And that gets to 81. And again, the thing that we'll keep a close eye on is, are we actually seeing the winner take most and distribution play out? Is the product market fit actually there? Do we really want to get into this business? Because I think we jokingly talked about this a couple of times in the lead up to this podcast as we were scoring these deals. Jamie Dimon in, uh, referred to cryptocurrency as a pet rock, which for those people who are listening in and who are younger than 50-something is a fad that occurred in the 1970s. Somebody said, we're going to have these pet rocks. It was a novelty item. People bought them. Somebody became a millionaire because of it. But of course, they went away quickly because who the hell needs a rock? for a pet. I mean, you can pick up a pet rock for free outside. So what Jamie Dimon is saying, hey, this crypto stuff, these wallets, this is a flash in the pan. It's never going to be anything big. And the big question is, will it or won't it? Well, we'll see. So, um, you know, I think it's tough in the U.S. because we have such a good fiat currency that the need for crypto is just not really there. I think if you live in Venezuela where your currency gets diluted every 10 minutes, Maybe um, you'd rather hold your money somewhere else. They make it really hard to do that, but it's uh, it's certainly the need for crypto wallets every day is very different outside the U.S. than it is here. So true, very true. To factor that into our our thinking, it's very easy for investors to just sort of say, "Well, would I use this?" And if the answer is no, then you move on. And sometimes you miss some amazing opportunities with that kind of mindset. So just always have to be aware. All right, next deal, deal number three, is a company called Grouping. And I'd love to tell you the URL, but every time we try to go to the URL, it doesn't work. So I don't know what the URL is. Honestly, it's, it's, it, theoretically, it's V as in Victor Grouping. So all one word, vgrouping.com. Dot com. Yeah. And it's out of Manila. Uh, it's an Andreessen deal along with Groupon. So Groupon somehow is leading a... $30 million venture round in the series B of this company grouping that is doing a series B, even though their product just launched one month ago, it's yeah. a really confusing situation. Chris. Let me tell you, this is, this is one where, you know, it depends on what you believe. So the positive argument for grouping is that it launched a month ago, already has 300,000 users who have a 90% approval, a 90% approval rating and 60% repurchase rate. Those are phenomenal numbers, if you can believe them. And that's one of the reasons why we're so excited about our portfolio company, Fossily, down in Brazil, because they had these incredible repurchase numbers, and those numbers continue to hold up, and we believe that company's going to do well over time, even though, of course, we're in a tough economy. But the beauty of being in the service of group buying is you're helping people buy things that they are going to buy no matter what. And so it tends to be a little counter cyclical. Well, you're also, yeah, you're helping them save money and people care about saving money right now more. Now, let me talk about the the red flags with grouping. Uh, you mentioned a couple of them and I'm going to go through them. One, the website doesn't come up. That's weird. Number two, grouping has their round led by Groupon. 
why is Groupon leading a venture round? Well, you know, I went and I looked up Groupon because I often talk about how Groupon is almost defunct. And in fact, it is almost defunct. What we discovered is that Groupon's market cap is now about 260 million, despite their having 380 million of cash on hand. So the company is valued as being less than zero because they have more cash than their market cap. And I guess they're deciding since we suck so much, we might as well just invest in other companies, which again is not a good reason to do it. That's red flag number two. Red flag number three uh, is that when I look at the announcement of the deal, there is a person listed as the contact person. Their email address does not match their name and it's a Gmail address. And when I went on LinkedIn to find this person <clears throat> looking up by my name, no such person showed up. So I ask you, what the hell is going on here? Well, in Very addition mysterious. to that, I mean, we know that the, the region is trying to copy the Pinduoduo model. And, and all across Southeast Asia, there's poor infrastructure, high shipping and logistic costs, um, you know, and, and that results in higher payments to people who are very poor. And, and so there's a very clear appeal to this. However, in the case of Indonesia, we've looked at least at three different deals, uh, Kita Belly, Chili Belly, a number of over the last couple of years that all have ambitions to scale throughout the region. And there's a previous startup from November 2020 called Reselli that started in the in the Philippines with objectives to scale across the region, raising a seed mound uh, of a million dollars two years ago and haven't seen much come of that. So, um, the you know, the real question here is there's a plethora of competition. Um, even in, in Indonesia, Gojek, um, Go Ventures has has supported uh, Kita Belly. So some of the, the most accomplished complementary players have gotten into this, and yet there's no clear emerging success story in any of these markets that I can see. You know, it would not surprise me. I signed the, a probability of 20% that this is actually a fake announcement that somehow made it into Crunchbase and other things like that. Yeah, I there, suppose it could be. There is I, no press, there, grouping does not show up on Andreessen Horowitz's portfolio page. I can tell you that. Well, and there's no app in the app store. And we, we looked pretty hard. Okay. I mean, this well, so, screams fraud. If it does exist, then, you know, why is it a blitzscaler? Well, of course, you know, the viral growth is amazing when you get your friends to join you in buying things. And in so doing, you get a lower price. Then it's a high incentive to do that. And then their friends do the same thing and it expands exponentially. And we saw that at Fastly and Pinduoduo. And so that's an amazing customer acquisition model. And so it's a 10 out of 10 for viral growth. And is the winner take most? Well, yeah, once you're the biggest one, you can have the lowest prices. So the winner will take most there. And so you just score so well on a blitzscaling metric that you get excited about the company. Now, this is not a software business. You got to deliver stuff to people. And so the gross margins are bad. The scalability is awful. But even so, you get to an 82 with uh, you know just terrible scores on gross margin and scalability because it's a big market and the product market fit. People tend to love it. They tend to come back and keep buying. So it's uh, you know it's it's a business that we should pay attention to if it's real. I would not touch this thing with a 10 foot pole at this point. Well, we got a lot more to learn. Yeah. All right. Final company of the day. This actually comes out of our fellows program. Jeff, why don't you provide again, a brief summary of our fellows program for the listeners? Sure, Chris, happily. Uh, so the fellows program is the way that we source international deals. 
As Chris and Scott have noted at the beginning of each podcast in the US, we look at the deals that have been done by approximately 35 top Silicon Valley primarily based investors, including those that they do internationally. The Fellows Program is a complement to that, where we look vertically inside promising country markets across every region of the world. And we look there, of course, first, we, we have a point of intersection when we find deals that have been done by those Silicon Valley firms. But we're also, over time, learning about important business model and investing trends in each of those countries or regions, as well as having a chance to spot some of the investors that are perhaps reliably participating in those deals over time, we, we may gain confidence and build a relationship with them and, and spread our, our global network. Um, and, and we're currently working with a group of about 20 uh, early career professionals around the world. And this deal today comes from Jules Deya, who is a finance master's student and has, has a, a strong interest in venture capital, a very diligent analyst who scores every deal every month in France. And Homa Games is an exciting kind of, Scott, I think you called it a, a Y Combinator for games. So it's, a, it's an interesting game development platform where game developers can submit their game and submit the data that's coming out of their game and run it through their platform for analysis of where it's working and where it's not, A-B testing and, and across a whole series of metrics. And then they have a consultancy capability that allows them to share best practices. When they decide to partner with the game developer, then they get behind it and help and help launch it and participate in a revenue share um, from the, the uh, advertising revenue coming out of the game. So interesting market. How did, how did you think about scoring it, Chris? Well, what's interesting about Homa Games, and again, uh, you guys know French better than me. Apparently, I should be pronouncing it Homa games all my games uh, but what's interesting about this company is not just what it is now but where it was and where it is going so where the company began was as a more traditional games studio so they were just a game development company they built games and some of those games were fairly successful they focus on casual mobile games that's their main area of emphasis and over time, they realized that the tools they built internally to figure out what kinds of games were popular, what kinds of gameplay elements were popular, uh, instrumenting the game itself to figure out how to remove the friction from sign up and how to improve gameplay and, and satisfaction, that that could actually be more powerful than just being used for their own games. They might be able to actually turn this into a platform. So that's what's happened. Homa Games has become Homa. It's an overall platform where game developers, including people with no coding experience, can use Homa to actually create games. And Homa will tell you, hey, this kind of game is doing very well right now. This kind of gaming element is doing very well right now. And so it's really a data-driven approach to this in much the same way that you would say that a, a Y Combinator does this a more unstructured way where you have a giant community and Phil Graham, is, uh, uh, Paul Graham is talking about, hey, these are things that should exist. Here, it's uh, they're saying, based on the data, these are video games that should exist and you could potentially create them and, and benefit from them. But the other thing is, where is it going? Because I think that there are several places where it goes. One is to be a dominant platform for developing these casual mobile games. The more that you become a platform, the more you have great network effects, developers are attracted to your platform, you build up a base of customers and can market to them. So there's a lot of potential network effects there. 
And the final thing is, I think that this is a backdoor approach to a metaverse because all the games that are built on top of their platform, they can easily share assets, easily share characters between them. They've already struck a deal with SoRare, for example, to allow people to use their avatars from game to game and also make them into collectibles. So there is a lot of interesting possibility, assuming this works. And of course, one of the reasons why they've been able to raise a lot of money and they raised $100 million recently is they have a lot of traction. They've had a billion downloads of their game so far. And again, I don't know. I'm not a serious gaming guy, but a billion certainly sounds like a lot. Yeah, the fact that the characters are able to traverse different realms and and move across, I think provides a lot of incentive both for the the game developer um, to continue to capitalize on a hit, as they call it. You know, we're not in it for a single hit. We want multiple wins coming out of your teams. And, and also for a player um, to, to join a game and, and then find common elements of the game that they may have mastered present in another game would seem to suggest that, hey, I'm just going to hop over here because I'm already sort of halfway familiar with it. I think that could lead to some additional adoption, if not outright virality in, in terms of the new games when there are those commonalities. And if you think about it, you can almost become like a Spotify for gaming, where you like this game, maybe you like this game. And curiously enough, the founder of Spotify you know, is an investor. In this I company. think that's exactly it. And, and I was ruminating on what exactly might have motivated them. But Spotify is striking a series of interesting partnerships these days. Absolutely. So you mentioned the deal, Chris, $100 million. And uh, it's a Series B. They've raised a total of $164 million. So this company's got some spending behind it and it certainly has enough money to do some damage looking forward uh you know it's if it's winner take most they've got a war chest and uh, north zone is an investor here as well uh, that's you know they're a super high quality firm out of london and, and copenhagen so I, I i i feel like they've got the core in place to really become important and whether they become the game studio independent game developers partner with or not is you know it's to be seen but it, it 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 appears they're the emerging leader at scale yeah and so that's why they scored well so from a winner take most perspective we gave them a nine out of ten again this is not perfect yet but there are platform network effects it appears uh, there is a level of stickiness because people who develop specifically for the HOMA platform are going to tend to continue developing for it, much in the way that we have just remarkable usage of things like Unity in the video gaming world. So they've got a couple of different network effects. Again, none as strong as a pure two-sided marketplace or a messaging service, but still good. Uh, from a distribution perspective, we gave them an 8 and that's because developers are going to try to spread their own games. There's established methods of distribution through the various app stores. And of course, they've demonstrated to some extent their ability to do this with a billion downloads already. Then it comes to product market fit. This is actually something we discussed some. We gave them a nine on product market fit. This is actually something where our analyst, Jules, was saying, uh, Jules, sorry, I keep pronouncing the word wrong. I'm thinking it's Latin American, no, he's French, so Jules was saying well, he gave it a 10 out of 10 I'm like ah, 10 out of 10 is a lot because again obviously they have a billion downloads that indicate something but the change to being a platform as opposed to just a studio is relatively newer i don't know if we can really give them a 10 out of 10. We took it down to nine i'm still not even certain about that but we'll, we'll go with that for the time being uh, the market size of obviously video gaming is huge 10 out of 10 they're already enormous 
gross margins, they rev share, video games are a brilliant, brilliant business to be in. You're selling bits for real money. I love it. 10 out of 10. Uh, the organization size, hey, you got developer relations. You're hand-holding these developers, helping them grow. You're providing maybe even some professional services. We took this down to an eight. And then operational scalability, 10 out of 10. These are relatively simple mobile games. They're not like AAA, massive console games. It's just easier to manage. The overall score, therefore, is a 79, which is just on the borderline, which means, hey, if we come in and we talk with them, we discover that they have a clever distribution strategy or there's network effects we weren't aware of or something like that, we might adjust it upwards and make it 80 or above. And that's why we have it on our watch list. But it definitely is intriguing. It's another great example of how being able to look further afield all around the world can turn up these interesting companies. Indeed, it's a very valuable program. And, and uh, Jeff is certainly the, the, the guide of all of our, our fellows who actually learn a lot working with us. We learn a lot from them. It's a terrific program. And it's but, really uh, great to see how many of them have talked about how they have gotten jobs they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. They're realizing their dream of getting into the venture business. Uh, it really feels like we're having a positive impact on their lives. We're certainly getting a ton out of it on our end, but it feels like it's also been great for the fellows. Indeed. Well, that concludes the overall rundown of deals. I mean, what are your final thoughts as we go into our fifth month of this new normal? How are we feeling about the deals we're seeing? How are we feeling about the market as a whole? The deals that we're seeing continue to be attractive and, and game-changing. Um, there are some common trends that, that continue to poke their heads up around the world, whether that be fintech in Africa or in Latin America or social commerce. So it seems the same problems out there remain to be solved. And if we can find the right companies to invest in and do so at the right time. And, and of course, uh, companies that have been capable of weathering the storm will, will be the ones that we're seeing, then I'm extremely optimistic about the blitzscaling approach and, and our process of finding deals um, that are coming out of these stormy, stormy waters um, into you know, sort of more open seas ahead. I, I remain really optimistic about our approach. Oh, yeah. So our approach is fine. The, the deals that I see are steering a little bit away from heavy marketing deals. So if, if, if your company is going to exceed through intense marketing spend, it's just tougher to raise money right now. And I don't see a lot of those coming to market. If your company is going to succeed because of a, of a superior technology, it's an infrastructure play that is going to be important for uh, B2B. The, I, I think we're seeing more of those. And then of course there's, um, you know, it's just what's hot. And crypto was seemed to defy all of the summer blues and the downturn in the market for a long time. And I think FTX kind of changed that dynamic. I'm seeing fewer and fewer of those deals get announced. It just, it, it, it seems like there's been some sobriety finally introduced to that segment of the market. And of course, uh, there's, um, the uh, open AI. I mean, that, that's that been all the talk for the last couple of weeks. And so, you know, when you, when you think about content generation going forward and how that could change how we build media businesses, how we build games, how we build the metaverse, so it's, it's just a, a ton of interesting stuff going on in that segment that I think will be very good to watch going forward. 
Absolutely. I will be looking forward to the massive wave of generative AI deals that we'll be seeing in the future and figuring out a way to separate the wheat from the chaff. All right, so this has been the November 2022 edition of Analyzing Blitz Scalable Venture Deals. I am Chris Yeh, and on behalf of Scott Johnson and Jeff Abbott, thank you for listening.